This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From the New York Institute for the Humanities, I'm Robert Boynton. Jad Albumrod is the co-host and creator of Radiolab. He studied creative writing and music composition at Oberlin, and in 2011 was awarded a MacArthur Grant. In 2016, he launched More Perfect, a show about the U.S. Supreme Court. In the fall of 2018, he produced The Most Perfect Album, a musical reimagining of the Constitution's 27 amendments. So uh, this most recent thing you've been doing struck me as an unbelievably creative and sort of uh, sort of mind-bendingly creative that I just wanted to talk about the idea of this podcast as an experiment in sonic uh, experimentation. Yeah, okay. Okay, cool. So so what – I mean you say you had this creative crisis, which I've read about. Uh, tell me a bit about this, this – the, the – um, the miracle of uh, indoor plumbing and how that addressed your personal crisis. Oh, okay. Um, let's see. This is going back about two years. I was at a point where I had I had been doing Radio Lab at that point, maybe twelve years, thirteen years, and uh, I had just created More Perfect out of a sort of restlessness to try something new, though not thinking it through enough to realize that if I made More Perfect and did Radio Lab at the same time. That's just two jobs, basically. <laughs> right. And uh, I had had two kids at this point, so I had sort of produced these two radio babies and then co-produced these two actual babies. And um, I was just exhausted. I was completely exhausted at that point. And um, frustrated because I felt like we were doing – somehow the stories all felt kind of – I don't want to say boring, but that somehow we were solving the same problems over and over again. And um, – I somehow had lost the sense of why I was doing it and when something was good, what made it good, the sort of like basic elements of craft that, you know, you find yourself in these editorial meetings and you're saying things like, oh, it's not surprising enough or the stakes need to be higher. You have all these sort of things you say and I had forgotten why any of it mattered. I would hear myself saying these things and just be like, why? what are you actually even talking about? So anyhow, to make a long story short, I just felt like I hit the wall and I took a break. And um, basically sat in my room by myself for five months. I didn't listen to podcasts. I went through like a deep aversion phase where I just – I couldn't hear the word podcast. I couldn't think about audio storytelling. I just wanted to get as far away from it as I could. A couple years previous, uh, I never had time to work, to work with it. I had bought this Moog Sub 37 synthesizer, and I just learned how to use it. You know, I, I looked, I watched YouTube all day and like learned about the filters and the oscillators and the various things. And I just like nerded out on this thing for, for months. And I set up my studio and I like just, just really geeky stuff. And it was great. It was blissful. But in the meantime, you know, I, in that, in that sort of null space, I started to think back about various things that, that, that I had experienced sort of in that gap, but also leading up to it. And the plumbing thing came in because just before I went on break, I had, I had an experience that at the time was sort of kind of banal, but as I was thinking back on it, it became kind of interesting to me. And it was one of those moments where I felt like I rediscovered some basic truth of storytelling. I was working one day and uh, a colleague of mine, Melissa O'Donnell, uh, who's since gone off to, to San Francisco, 
but she was working at Radiolab and she sort of saw me at one day and she's like, I, I, I would do this thing where like my body would sort of slump over as I was like editing. And she saw me in one of these states and she was like, you need to take a walk. So she took me out. And at this point, my world was basically one square block. I would sort of walk around the block. I would go sort of go right on Varick, left on Charlton, get some coffee, left on Hudson, get some lunch, left on Spring, left on Varick, back in the building. <laughs> and all my entire, like all of Manhattan had been winnowed down to this. And so we take a right, take a left, take a left, as I always did. But then she was like, let's go to the right. So let's veer off the path. And I was like, I don't. I don't go to the right. But uh, but so she kind of drags me off. She's like, well, we'll go to the river. It'll be great. And so we sort of walk down the street. And a couple paces down the road, we see this sculpture shop called Complete Sculpture, or the Complete Sculpture. One of these sort of nondescript signs of which there are so many in New York. Mm. And you're like, I don't know what that is. Is that a store? Is it big? Is it small? Kind of can't tell. Could have been a coffee shop. Could have been a know. coffee shop. Wasn't sure. Uh, w- walked in because it just seemed intriguing. And... It turned out to be this really bizarre kind of like through the looking glass art supply shop that was somehow stranded in time from 1970s or something. It had random prosthetic limbs hanging off the walls, movie characters sitting on shelves. It had millions of scalpels of different sizes and shapes, little brushes, strange kind of diamond studded drill bits. In the basement, it had massive hunks of marble and like uh waiting to be cut waiting to be cut just unformed marble it had stone women torsos hanging from the ceiling creepily it had (laughs) it was just the weirdest most wonderful and bizarre space and it was just like it was it was so weird to be in that space and to think wow this was just 20 steps from my loop i had no idea it was here Anyhow, so we spent two hours just wandering through it, uh, looking at trade magazines of dedicated to the viscosity of fake blood, right? It was just like so, like just this other world. And we walked out of there, and I, I remember, this is where the plumbing comes in. Hmm. I remember the feeling of just like waking up or something. You know, everything, the air had a certain charge to it. Everything seemed brighter. I was kind of in this weird dream state. And I remember looking down and there was a manhole cover on the, on the street. And I, I remember looking down at the manhole cover and thinking to myself, indoor plumbing. Holy shit. Indoor fucking plumbing. Like there are pipes under the street. And these pipes go into all of our homes and our businesses and they whisk away our shit. Like that's a miracle. And I think back on that incident... And it's really interesting to me, like phenomenologically, like the first thing I was stuck in a rut, Mm -hmm. right? I had been just in this like work rut for weeks. I, I encounter some new surprising reality, which was the sculpture shop. And I walk out and I look at this manhole cover, which I see hundreds of times a day. But that time I thought, oh my God, indoor plumbing, like this thing that is so basic to our lives that is actually a miracle. I was able to recognize the miraculousness of it, but I had to be surprised first. (laughs) And so it was interesting to me phenomenologically like that surprise was the first step to gratitude. And it was this moment thinking back, I was like, oh, this is why surprise is important. This is Mm -hmm. why we need surprising stories because the stories themselves are like these little sculpture shops that someone that we build that someone can wander into and then see 
and realize that what they had been looking at all along was in fact a miracle. Right. And so that it was for me thinking back on it that opened my eyes to like one of the most basic primal important rules of storytelling is that you have to surprise your audience. And I I I had forgotten that. And so that's where the plumbing comes in. And you've been doing your job so well in some ways that, you know, uh, one of the things I always teach students is how much fakery it takes to make something seem completely natural. Mm-hmm. And you're so damn good at that that you would actually sort of sort of beat the surprise out of yourself in some ways, you know. Oh, yeah. You become like a mannerism of surprise. Yeah. You can, really? Right. You, can, you can just fake it, you know, totally. Right. Yeah. And that you need to really rediscover it through something as as uh, as fundamental and uh, sort of pedestrian as literally shit or the thing yes, that conveys exactly. shit. Yeah. Exactly. That's as good as an apple falling in the head, I think. You know, I think that as a mom- an aha moment. You yeah. Know? yeah. It has tension. It has all the things we want in a story. Got Absolutely. a good character. It's got a resolution. And, you know, it wasn't just that, that it was a su- slightly surprising shop. It was startling, right? You need something that's actually startling like to, to really grab somebody and shake them. It's a particular kind of surprise, you know? It was utterly immersive and, like, that it was this giant thing that was so close to my reality and I had just missed it. Right. So all the ingredients were there. The The idea for More Perfect came out of, I gather, encountering a number of legal stories and realizing this hidden sort of treasure, really, in a way, of, of, of court decisions, which actually could be narrativized, if that's a word. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And is that something that um, that also was part of this kind of desire for more creativity, for stretching out a bit? So it, like everything that's ever happened to me, it's sort of like it bubbles up as a some idea that you can't really name yet, and then suddenly you're doing it, and then suddenly it makes sense. It never actually makes sense at, at the beginning. It was 2012... And I remember very specifically, we had we had gotten really good at doing a particular kind of science meets philosophy meets metaphysics kind of thing where, like, I could plot the beats for you. You know, you talk to a scientist and they, they tell you about a study and then you get to that moment where you draw some meaning out of the study. And at that very moment, you cue the music and you have that kind of moment of wonder. And I, I kept I, we were in that that rut. To a point where I, I remember having this thought where I was like, if I have to sound design the, so- the sound of a neuron, I'm going to throw myself out the fucking window. If I have to do that one more time, I'm done. So uh, we gathered the whole team together. And that day, for some reason, I think the Supreme Court had released its docket. And I remember just grabbing that and being like, okay, we've never done this before. So let's just all get together. Everybody choose one of these cases and make a call. And then let's report back. Next meeting, we got back together. Nobody had really found anything except one guy, Tim Howard. He had made a bunch of calls about uh, one of the lesser-known cases on there, which was called Adoptive Couple v. Baby Girl, which was on the surface kind of an ordinary custody case. You had a couple who had adopted a baby, a two-year-old girl, and then you had the biological dad who'd been missing sort of, but he'd wandered back in and was now claiming custody, and they were fighting over it. But weirdly, that... That little two-year-old girl, like, her outcome was tethered to, like, these massive questions of sovereignty of the 500-some-odd native nations. So custody uh, works very differently in the Cherokee Nation as it does outside. And so Tim got interested in this case, and he started making some phone calls, and he started asking about that. Like, why is the custody set up the way it is? Which then leads you to these questions about the history of child abduction off of uh, Native American reservations going back to the 50s, where you had people just driving under these reservations and literally grabbing kids, putting them in cars and driving away because they thought somehow, like, 
they could give these kids a better life. Well, it was like what happened in Australia with the Aboriginal people, right? right? Exactly the same thing. Yeah. It was one of those kind of onion moments where like you peel one layer back and then another and it just gets more and more interesting. It's, it was like everything you want in a story, you know? I mean, you, you kind of want that sort of Whitman universe in the blade of grass. Right. And this was just like one two-year-old girl, but she contained multitudes. She contained multitudes. It, yeah. You know, all of these questions, all of these lives were hinging on what happens to her. And I, I just remember thinking like, oh my God, this is, this is like the perfect story. And they just tell you 10 things that they're going to cover. They give it to you ahead of time. Well, even, even more than that, I mean, court upon court upon court have winnowed through all yeah. the stories with no tension, no characters. Exactly. And said, here are the best ones. Exactly. So we did that story. Then we, we did maybe two or three others. We ended up doing a whole hour on the legal foundation for the war on terror much later, which wasn't really Supreme Courty, but te- kind of adjacent. And uh, at a certain point, I was like, this just needs to be its own thing. And so we just, we started More Perfect as a spinoff, which was really just as the simple mission was take the Radiolab lens and apply it to the Supreme Court. And one of the secrets that we discovered is that you have all of these audio, you, like Oye.com has... Going back to 1956, I believe, oral arguments for all of these cases. I mean, really. Which I was surprised by because you always hear about the the justices saying, well, there'll never be cameras in the court. Who needs a camera when you've got every word of theirs recorded? Yeah. And and, uh, I'd say 60% of it is very legalistic. You don't quite know what they're doing. They're they're, They're constantly sort of referencing precedents that you don't know about. But there's also, I mean, there's a very particular way in which they argue the, the justices argue through their questions. So they're, they're, they often don't care who the lawyer is, but they're actually arguing with each other. And so it's a really interesting way to understand, like, history and to understand politics and to understand – I don't know. I mean, it was, a, it was one of those things where we just started it on a lark. But then once you're listening to these oral arguments, you realize, like, this is the original hypertext in some way. Everything connects to everything else. It's built stone by stone. And it always leads you back to 1783. Right. You know, it leads you always back to the beginning. And so it was a great way to understand history as well. Um, And so, yeah, that began two seasons ago. But it really started, if I go all the way back, to just being restless. Right. What I love about that that whole project, too, is that you've ended up doing something that's sort of newsy, uh, is kind of amazing. And again, it's, I think, a testament to the the fact that if you, you follow your creativity and your anxiety and your restlessness, that something good will come and, and something maybe good, even journalistic, will come of it. Yeah. How did you come up with the idea for the most perfect album? I mean, it, it came up to me just sort of, I always feel like the stories that I, that I do begin from some deficit, some sense that like, you know, I missed school the day that that was explained, you know, and I've always had that feeling about... Um, about the amendments to the Constitution, even even through More Perfect, you know, I would, we would slowly sort of get educated on the different amendments. But I, I, you know, all throughout, I was like, how did these get done? What, you know, just having a real, just like not, and, and not fe- as a result, not feeling like a good citizen. But they're also so fussy and so boring. And I remember just thinking about this over the break, like, how do we make these come alive? And I remembered being this like young Lebanese kid and like how did I learn about government was through Schoolhouse Rock. That's you right. You know, I'm just a bill here on Capitol Hill. And it's like, oh, you know, it just, it was so like the music and just, it was so charming that it just like, and it's sticky, all of it. So I had this somewhat half-baked idea to just, what if we Schoolhouse Rockified the amendments, but in a way that was contemporary and a little bit surreal and a little bit strange. And so 
maybe about two years ago, we just kind of started calling around to different musicians saying, hey, can you, would you, would you want to explain the amendment in this song? No one really wants to explain the amendments, but everybody was really ready, ready to personalize the amendments, to turn, say, the Eighth Amendment, Cruel and Unusual Punishment. That can become a love song so easily because who hasn't been subjected to cruel right. and unusual punishment in a relationship? And so we began to think, okay, well, why don't we actually just use this as an experiment to see if people can kind of like breathe in these abstract principles, these rights that we have as Americans, and personalize them and make them reanimate them through music. And at the same time, we would then, in the podcast, tell stories about the amendments, about how they came to be. And um, So it was, it was always going to be something that was both musical and also journalistic or, or narrative. Yes, I yes. See. And the sort of like overarching story is if you read the amendments, you know, like the first 10 are the Bill of Rights. Like these are – they wrote this constitution and then, and then the states were like, hmm, I don't know. I, I, this federal government's a little too powerful. We need some rights. And so they write these 10 rights. Then they start to and they start to amend it, like literally to like, and you realize like this is the story of a country like changing and evolving and striving to kind of pull itself out of the mud and get to its higher ideals. Like it is literally the story of America trying to be better. Oh, like okay, you got the Fourteenth Amendment, which says we all are equal under the law, but then you've got what is it? I don't forget which one the poll tax is. We realized, yeah, that didn't work quite the way we thought, you know, so we need another one. So we had to write that one to fix the problem we didn't even know we didn't know about. And so you, it, it is the story of us trying to get to our better angels in some sense. And I wanted that story to feel the way it should feel. It's not an abstraction. Like we are all constantly engaged in trying to be better as citizens and as a country. But I mean, the uh, making it didactic felt wrong to me. And there are a couple of the musicians, like Dolly Parton did the 19th Amendment, and hers is very didactic, explains the history, explains what it is, uh, and it works. Women have been fighting for the legal right to vote since the 1840s. In 1890, the National American Women's Suffrage Association, NAWSA, was established with Susan B. Anthony, its leading force. But women have been fighting for their rights since the very beginning of time. It was more interesting to me to see people personalize it, make it unique to them. You know? That one about, I don't remember his name, the Native American uh, musician. About, Joey Styles. Yeah. Joey Styles about uh, not being able to worship was unusually moving. He's, a, he's actually a, a first Matisse Canadian, I believe, so sort of a native Canadian mm. and uh, very interested in the First Amendment and in, in, in its failings, really. You know, the First Amendment, one of the six clauses of it says freedom of religion, freedom of thought, essentially. But f up until the 50s, I believe Native Americans were not – their, their uh, ritual dances were not protected under the, under the First Amendment. And there was a massacre, I think it was 150 people were killed for doing their native dances. Uh, and he sings about that. We're all free to speak what's on my right. Well, I don't feel right when I look outside. Too many people, poor corporations getting richer. People going crazy, living life with the trigger. Having visions in the ceremony of the cemetery. Too many homies gone young, each is getting buried under. How did you know that everyone wasn't going to pick one of the top ten or top five? There were a lot. I mean, people clustered for sure. But um, what was interesting was that it, it 
a lot of people like there's a lot of these amendments that are kind of procedural. There's a there's like the twelfth amendment I think, which is an amendment that said okay, the vice president have to be on the same party or something, and like that's kind of a boring one. But actually, a lot of the musicians really went for those. Like, really? Oh, yeah, they were really interested in the kind of the wonky ones, term limits, these kinds of things, which I thought was really interesting because it, on a couple, like there's one, there was one, one of my favorites. Uh, it's from an Austin band called The Octopus Project. They took a lot of the sort of mechanical elements of the language and used it and translated it into mechanical sounds, which I thought was really interesting because so much of our democracy is not just high-minded principles. It's about like pragmatic solutions, like how do you vote? How do you have a line of secession? All of these kinds of things. It's like the operating system, you know, it's got to be coded properly. People, people leaned into that stuff. So there was no one amendment that you had to go to some one, one band and say, please, please. 27. 27. Was, was hard to get takers. That's you, the one that said uh, Congress can't give itself a raise. But, you know, I mean, like, obviously people wanted to do the first and the second. We had a right. bunch, bunch for those. Did you just have all of these bands, all these performers and, and composers at your fingertips? Or did you have to sort of... No, we, we worked with a bunch of people. Um, we, you know... Uh, the more perfect team kind of converted themselves into a record label over the course of two years. I mean, they brought their own personal taste into it. We also had somebody in the building who'd worked in A&R. Oh, um, perfect. Uh, named Nora Keller, who she just brought like all of these great acts. And I think it's from her former life. She had that Rolodex. So it was just kind of, you know, catching as you can. Radiolab, among the things that distinguishes it is its sound. You would recognize a piece instantly uh, because of the sound design. And I gather that that's in large part due to you. What is sound design? Can it be taught or do you have to be Jad Alpamrad? Okay, let me take the first one. <laughs> um, I don't know. Sound design is a little bit like sound design is to is to music as graphic design is to art, I guess. It's the same basic things are happening, but you're solving problems rather than doing it for its own sake. It exists on a spectrum, you know, and, and that's always the first thing I think about. I mean, there's this sort of very literal sound design, which is that you, you're telling a story and, you know, so-and-so came to my house one day and knocked on the door, right? And that's, a, you know, you put that in. That can be considered sound design. Which Radiolab certainly does. We do has, some of that. Made, and, but in, again, in a nice way of kind of um, showing the seams. Yeah, exactly. So there's, um, there's very sort of like literal, I almost think of it like these are words. They're very specific sounds that, that mean like a, like a word is, is, a, is a placeholder for a picture. And so you use sounds in the same way. There's on the other end of the spectrum, there's, there's music, right, which is quite different. There's nothing linguistic about it. It, it. it is, whereas like this means knocking on a door, there's no music that you can play that's going to mean that. You can say that like adagio for strings is sad. It doesn't mean sad. It just is sad. It embodies sadness. Walter Murch talks about it as like, on, like words are encoded sound and music is embodied sound. And for me, sound design exists on some spectrum between those two things. Sometimes you use the, but sometimes you use music. And the, the thing that I've always found interesting about Radiolab is it exists in the middle. There's a lot of sounds that are somewhat evocative editorially, 
but they also carry emotional content. They carry something that's metaphoric about them. And so I always try and score in that space where it's not really a sound effect. It's a little bit like Looney Tunes. Remember the old Looney Tunes where um, they, you're, the, some, some characters tiptoeing across the floor and the, the pit's cut all go thum, 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 thum. And you know exactly what's going on there, but it's not a sound effect. It's some musical gesture that's evoking something like a picture, but not quite. And for that reason, it's still metaphoric. For that reason, it, it's, it never dates in quite the same way. And so I always try and play in that space where it's not kind of music, but it's kind of editorial at the same time. That's our particular space. But um, do you need to be a musician a musician to do that? I don't know. You, I mean, I think you need to be able to or to care to think a lot about what the sound is doing in that moment. Mostly what you need to do is you need to have the patience to play it for a lot of people and have them tell you when it sucks, which is I mean, if anything is a part of our process, it's that. Like a lot of the producers, me, will put in sounds. It's too much. You play it for someone and they're just like, you can see them recoil. And you're like, okay, right around here, there was just too much stuff. And you, and then, you, then, then it becomes a process of stripping back and trying to get to the bare minimum. And so it's never anything that you can do right off the bat. It's a process that takes time. There are so many layers of creativity in Radiolab, there's the narrative creativity, there's the idea of very sort of muscular ideas, you said metaphysics, neurology, all those sorts of things. But then there's also this other character. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the, the sound of it really is like, it's like you, Robert, and this other thing called sound design. Totally. I sometimes like to see it as the, the story is this little boat floating on the ocean, but there's all the stuff underneath, right? The, the, the music is that, that's where the music is. It's the, it's the stuff that can get to the subterranean depths. And the little people in the boat have no idea what's going on down there, but the music knows. It can go everywhere. It is the sea upon which everything floats. Like Wagner had this idea of how to use music, which was that the, that the orchestra was a kind of Jungian subconscious of the story. You know, you had these characters, these like 60-some-odd characters on stage at various times, and they're all engaged in their solitary dramas. The only thing that understands all of it is the orchestra. And so at any given moment, you'll have like Wotan up there on stage, but somewhere buried in the oboe section is a motif which is indicating that he's going to lose his power. Might not happen for four hours, but the orchestra knows, right? It knows everything. I, lo I really love that idea, that motific idea that, that there are things happening in the music which are so far outside the, uh, the lives of these characters. It's a little bit like when you watch a movie and, you see, and the music comes up and suddenly those characters seem so epic, but they're still tiny. But there's something about the drama in which they're engaged, which is huge because the music somehow enlarges them while keeping them small. Mm -hmm. Do you think sound design can be taught? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think there's so much of sound design, which is very almost like punctuational. I mean, it's like in the, in the way that you learn the grammar of writing, you know, you're like period, comma, semicolon, right? So much of sound design is about punctuation, about um, creating spaces where you can highlight a thought. And often what will happen is as, you, as you're building a scene, the scene will break down into like little micro scenes, you know, thought, thought, rest, thought, thought, rest. And then the rests can be silence or sometimes you want to have some kind of like musical element that pops in there that simply acts as like cartilage or something. You know, it's not giving you emotional content. It's not trying to make you feel anything, but it's actually just allowing this thought to exist at a distance from that thought. Sometimes you're telling a story and then somebody will loop back into the past. They'll suddenly like give you context, put a little music under that. And then suddenly you're taking that past and you're lifting it out of time, you know? So you can use music that way as um, 
as quotationally sort of like pulling something out of out of the the time flow of the story. You also use uh, silence much more than any other show. There are times when I literally will look back at my iPod. Does, is it over? Is it still working? Yeah. Someone told me that's, that 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 was named for a while on the internet as the Radio Lab pause, <laughs> where it's like, um, wait, is it something I love wrong? It. That was a, an intentional thing because. Back in the early days, it would, the radio lab could get really dense. We would put a ton of stuff in. It could get like fifth gear all the time, just like cut, 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 cut. And at a certain point, I just, I was like, oh, I need, there needs to be other gears that we can hit to. And so we, I began to think really a lot about shifting the textures and like going from density to silence and like having different. Is, is silence like your, your uh, lemon sorbet that sort of clears you out for the next course? Yeah, and it's like sometimes you do it really for editorial purposes, you know. Nothing will hit harder than if you've got like a really killer phrase, a character. Like you really want someone to pay attention to, take the music right out, out right before they say it. So like, you know, how many times do we do this? Every Radio Lab story, music, 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 out, silence, someone says the thing. The really good thing, you know, so it's like sometimes you do it, you use silence as a way to highlight a thought. It's like a, it's to exalt it. So it's, it, it's, it's never purely stylistic. You're always trying to do something for the story. I see it as a, as a, like a, a purple pillow to rest the jewel. I like that. I mean, yeah. it's because this is something I think that people are really thinking through when they're realizing that, you know, what is the future of audio? It's been democratized through digital technology and through the internet and, all those things, but uh, you're gonna have story, and some some shows are just two guys talking. Some shows have a real robust sort of produced feel to them, and then I think with that comes the responsibility of, in the same way as in in the magazine world, you have art directors and photography directors and you know wonderful people to do the layout of the magazine. The sound design seems to play some of that role, and I'm mm-hmm. not quite sure who to go to for some of those things. Yeah, I mean, it's I've heard in, in movie in the movie world. I mean, you have the composers, obviously, and if you have a really big budget movie, the composer will recompose things over and over as the movie changes and scenes expand and contract. But often, what you'll have is the composer will will write a bunch of music and then give it to the editor as stems. And so then the editor will have these like cues, but they're, you know, 12 tracks, all the instruments broken out. And then the editor will start to play around and they'll Mm. they'll take out some of the layers, they'll put in others, they'll take one part and loop it a bunch of times. And that's basically sound design. You know, it's sound designing with someone else's music. But there does seem to me a space where it is somewhere between an editor and a composer is where a lot of things are happening right now. And, you know, one of the things that's been really interesting to see at Radiolab is, I mean, when I started it, I was writing all the music, and then I started working with a guy, Dylan Keefe, and we'd split it. And then suddenly all of the producers wanted to write their own music. And so then I started to see keyboards pop up at each of the desks. And then, you know, Matt Kilty, one of our producers, just writes all his own music. Simon Adler, another one, just writes his own music. Annie McEwen, another producer, writes all her own music now. It's just happened. It's weird. And it's like, and I think it's, I think it's partially working at Radiolab, but I think it's also that when you're making a story, you inevitably end up in that weird middle ground between music and editing where you're, you're using sounds as musical objects. You're using voices as musical objects. You're starting to kind of like adjust timings. You're starting to take things and pull them and to make drones and various things. And you're kind of composing, but you're also just kind of telling a story at the same time. And sound design is a really inadequate word for whatever that is. Right, yes. And that's where a lot of the action is. I often say that the best literary journalism these days is being done in audio. 
And I feel as if uh, the DNA of great literary journalism, whether it's Joseph Mitchell or someone else, and the DNA of great audio, the great kind of narrative, heavily produced audio, are not just similar, but identical. And podcasting seems to have liberated that particular strand of DNA in a way. Why do you think podcasting is special? Why is it special to your show? Or how has it changed uh, audio? We have a very particular relationship to podcasts. I mean, we started as a radio show. And Radiolab never made sense as a radio show, even though it's in our name. But I mean, I would hear Radiolab when I'm in the kitchen and there's things happening. And, and it's just like the density of production and the speed at which these stories move sometimes made it really hard to listen to on the radio because you're just the radio is built for you to be doing 12 things at once. But then something passes between you and the box and you've lost the plot and then the story is resumed off without you. So we, we, you know, we were on the radio for years and I don't think it worked very well. I mean, it does. It works better now because I think all of our listening has caught up. When podcasting came along, I felt like it really rescued us. You know, I mean, I would I would sit in the cave and just make these things with a sort of a naive sense that like, oh, someone will enjoy this, but really not thinking too deeply about how it's going to be used. But then podcasting came along and then people could listen to it in their ears and they could hit stop if it went too fast and they could bounce back and and they could have a very sort of individual relationship with the story as they're walking down Fifth Avenue, you know. It just made more sense to the kinds of stories we were telling. Movie-style production doesn't make sense on the radio. Everything for how people listen to also like how a, a radio signal gets compressed five different times before it actually goes out the radio. By the time it comes to you, everything is squashed and you can barely hear the voice. On a podcast, it's, it's more or less how you made it. And so podcasting changed everything for us. Suddenly things could hang around. They could be archived. It was, you know, in terms of what you're asking, there's a part of me that wants to push back against the idea that podcasting has done anything on its own. I mean, you listen to old Gene Shepard or, 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 you know, even early This American Life. Things I hear on podcasts aren't terribly different. It has democratized things and it has actually the economy that's grown up around it is pretty radical and transformative. And maybe that's the biggest thing in the end of the days. Like when I got into radio, you had to kind of wait around and intern for two years without pay until someone even noticed you were there. And then they might let you do a new spot. But these days, you can just basically get a mic and a computer and you could make a thing and then get it on SoundCloud and then onto iTunes in like 48 hours. So like the gatekeepers are no longer a problem the way they used to be. And that's, that's no small thing. But in terms of what it's done for the sound of things... I don't know. Some Part of me thinks it's transformed things and part of me thinks it hasn't. I don't think necessarily it's transformed the sound as much as, it, it, as you said, that for a show, especially as intimate and as, you know, sonically aware as you are, it's a shot right into the into your central nervous system. Yeah. yeah. Listen, thank you so much for yeah, the time. I really appreciate really it. Fun. This podcast has been brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU in conjunction with the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. Our producer is Ben Branstein. Our thanks to Uli Baer and, for their technical and design wizardry, Aaron Dowdy and Selena Lacazzi. For more information, or if you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at, this is one word, nyihumanities.org. Again, that's nyihumanities.org.